so a formal welcome to Torah Studies. This is our very first session of Torah Studies in the year 2021. And we could not have picked a more perfect Torah Studies class to start the year off, the, at least the Gregorian calendar year, 2021, than with a class that talks all about perfectionism. By raise of hand, don't worry, this will not count on your final uh grade or record, but by raise of hand, who saw my email about the class that I sent out about a little over an hour ago? Who saw the email about the class? Who noticed? Did you guys, you saw that? Okay. Did you notice anything about the header over there? Yes. It said something about Torah studies tonight or join me for Torah studies or Torah study. And then it said in parentheses, perfectionism. But here's what I did just to mess with you guys, because I love you. I put in the parentheses, I used the first thing was a parentheses. The second one was a bracket. I did that. I did that just because I, didn't, I wanted it to have a flaw intentionally so that you would notice it to speak about, did anybody notice that by the way? Did anybody, no one noticed it? All right, it's okay. Remember, it's not on your final record or grade, but I am watching you, you all. No, I'm kidding. So I did that intentionally. I thought it would be a good segue, and it's a conversation piece, at least on my end right now, so to talk about the idea of perfectionism. And I think that it's a, it's a worthy topic, especially as we begin the book of Exodus, which deals with a lot of drama, Right? A lot of drama in Egypt, a lot of uh, slavery and persecution and ultimately redemption and salvation. And we end up getting matzah out of it. So that's good, especially if you're a Manischewitz stockholder. I don't know if they have a stock, by the way. But if you do and they do, then it's a, it's a good thing. But getting back, let's rewind a second. By raise of hand, who considers themselves to be a perfectionist? Who considers themselves to be a perfectionist? Okay, we have... So, all right, we have a few, a few hands going up. I'm going to assume, based on um, my law of asking, my rule of asking people to raise their hands, there is a percentage of people that it doesn't matter. They're not going to raise hands. It's, not, it's never going to happen, right? It doesn't matter. Is the sky usually blue? You're not, it's, don't worry. It's not, but that's fine, that's fine, but it's not a criticism. It's just a thing, you know. Who has the energy? At this point, who can not, right? So I'm assuming that a few more than those that raise their hand, you know, maybe another 10, 15% would consider themselves perfectionists if there was perhaps an easier way to find that out. Here's the point. Here's the point. Some of us consider, them, consider ourselves perfectionists. Even if we don't, some of us strive for perfection. And some of us we don't need perfectionism. We don't need to be perfectionists. We love the idea of imperfection. It's interesting. I was reading an article a few years ago in a magazine called Wired, Wired Magazine. It's like a tech magazine. So in Wired Magazine, I was reading an article and somebody was writing, maybe the editor-in-chief was writing about design and how for years... We thought that design, like the greatest design, was design that is perfectly symmetrical. Symmetry is beauty, and design that's symmetrical and balanced would be the best. 
But this new theory, it's so edgy. The new theory was, the new edgy theory was, that if you create an imperfection in the design, like the words are a little this way or that, like some flaw, intentionally, it will actually grab the reader's attention more and better, more effectively than perfect symmetry and balance. And I thought that was interesting. You know, there's in beauty, typically beauty is associated with balance and harmony. It's true also in Kabbalah, by the way, that when you talk about the energies of the soul, right? So the emotional energies, the first one is on the right side, chesed and gevura, and in the middle it's called teferis. Teferis or teferet means beauty. It also means harmony and balance. So what's balanced and, and harmonized is beautiful. But there's also beauty on the edges, if you will, right? There's beauty in the lack of harmony. And there might be even a more interesting beauty in that lack of perfection. So tonight we're going to look at the value of being a perfectionist and the value in being a non-perfectionist. What is the value in perfection? And what is the value in not perfect yet, working on it, but probably won't really get there anyway? That was a lot, all of that has dashes in between. So, right? So what's the, what's the value of perfectionism and not yet working on it, but probably not going to get there? Uh, persona. What's, what are the respective values? And again, all of it is going to connect, as you'll see soon, with our opening Torah portion of the book of Exodus called Shemot or Shemos. Okay, so let's talk about two, two of the greatest Jewish prophets that ever existed, right? Great Jewish prophet. And I'm not talking about prophet with an F. And Facebook, that's another Jewish prophet that we'll have to save for another time. Okay, Jewish prophets with a PH, right? Jewish prophets, greatest. Okay, unmute yourself. If you read the email, you already know that what, where I'm going with this. But if you haven't or pretend that you haven't, that you haven't yet, then, ring it, then weigh in on this. Who's the greatest Jewish prophet of all time? Greatest Jewish prophet, unmute yourself, jump in. Moshe. Yep, Moshe, Moses. Greatest Jewish prophet. Good. Give me a good popular number two. Who's another popular Jewish prophet? Elio Anavi. Elijah the prophet. Good. And those, and those are our two characters that we're going to explore tonight. Moses and Elijah. Moshe Rabbeinu and Elio Anavi. Now, let's first start. We're going to go in, not in historical order. We're going to go out of order, not... Moses, but we'll talk about Elijah first. So Elijah is a very colorful character. In fact, although he departed this earth many thousands or a few thousand years ago, nonetheless, we talk about him to this very day visiting planet earth. Okay, unmute yourself. Again, extra credit, bonus points in the Torah class. If you can unmute yourself and let me know, when do we welcome Elijah the prophet to earth? Donna. What is Passover? What is Passover? You even got in the form of a question. Wow. That's like extra, extra. 
Um, the folks at Shepherdy would like to would like a word. Perfect. So yes, what is Passover? We welcome him with a glass of wine. Correct. The cup of Elijah. It's usually a big cup. Hey, yeah. the guy's doing a lot of traveling. He's got to hit every seder. You know, when we were when when many of you were kids, right? There was like this bump the table. Let's see if the wine, right, when no one's looking, let's, oh, the wine, oh, the wine went down. It must have been Elijah, right? Anybody have that? Okay, good. So that's Elijah. When else does Elijah appear on earth? Again, unmute yourself and let me know. When is Elijah making a cameo? Bev? Whenever there's a bris. Yes, at a bris milah, at a brit milah, at a circumcision, we welcome Elijah. In fact, there is a seat of Elijah. So at the Seder on Passover, we have a cup of Elijah. At a bris milah, at a circumcision, at a brit milah, we have a chair of Elijah. This guy has all this swag everywhere. He's got like cups, he's got chairs. You got to have stuff for him. You, you know, he, he doesn't bring his own accessories. You have to have it stored. You got to, like synagogues will have like a chair that they don't use otherwise only for a circumcision. Like legit. Yes? You with me on this? Yes? Synagogues will have a special chair and they will use it for, um, for the circumcision, a nice plus chair, whatever. Okay, so that's two contexts. Give me another context when Elijah, when Elijah is mentioned. Another context on a regular basis in Jewish tradition that we mention Elijah the prophet. Who's got this? Abdallah. Abdallah, excellent. Excellent. Saturday night. Saturday night as we as we prepare to conclude the Shabbat or as we conclude the Shabbat and we prepare to go into the work week, it is customary to evoke a mention of Elijah the prophet. Good. Good. Final question for this round. Of Elijah, of Elijah trivia. Final question is, when else is Elijah slated to make an appearance on earth and to make a proclamation? I can't say anything more without giving it away. When is Elijah slated to make a proclamation? Uh, Mashiach. Mashiach, excellent. And, and Elio also had it in the chat box to announce the Mashiach. So Elijah is known as the one who heralds, the one who lets us know that Mashiach, the Messiah, is here. Okay, so this is all, these are all things that we associate with Elijah the prophet. So definitely an interesting persona, definitely someone who we need to explore because there have been a lot of great prophets. We don't talk about Moses visiting we don't talk about, I mean, it's, it's a very unusual thing that we have with this one prophet. What is the deal with Elijah? So let's review a little bit about his life and times. Let's review a little bit about Elijah. Again, I, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here. The discussion tonight is going to come back around to the idea of perfectionism versus non-perfectionism. And to understand the, the respective um, advantages and disadvantages or virtues and liabilities, we will explore two famous Jewish prophets, Moses 
and Elijah. We're starting with Elijah, we're going to move to Moses, and then, of course, we're going to connect it to this Torah portion and the opening of the book of Exodus. So that's, again, that's the outline, that's the bigger picture, but we're diving in right now to Elijah. Okay, but that's where we are. So who is, who was Elijah? What was his deal when he was um, on this planet, planet Earth, living his life? Elijah was one of the prophets in the, in the era of the first temple. And, and unfortunately, in his time period, the Jewish people were not exactly doing what they were supposed to do. The Jewish people, in fact, uh, many had turned to idol worship. And um, it may sound surprising, it may sound even inconceivable that the Jewish people, you know, the carriers of monotheism, and, you know, given the Ten Commandments and given how many verses in Torah speak about serving one God and not multiple gods, it might seem inconceivable that the Jewish people themselves, having a temple, a holy temple in Jerusalem to worship God there, would then have other temples and altars to serve idols, but it happened. It happened. It's, again, inconceivable, but it happened. Just so you know, this is not why, what I intended to say tonight, but I feel like I need to say this. You and I cannot relate to the temptation of idol worship, idolatry. You and I don't have that temptation. And the reason is, as the Talmud says, because the sages of one of the eras, the Jewish sages prayed to God to have that temptation eradicated from the world. So you and I don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I need me some idol worship. We don't typically, listen, if, if your mileage may vary, but typically people don't wake up and say, man, I really need to worship an idol today. It's not a thing. Now, you, we have other things, right? Lord knows we have other things that we wake up and really want to do. But that's not one of them, but it was. So we can sit back here in 2021 and look back and say, what were they doing? That's Meshuggah. But it's only because we can't relate because we're wired differently today, which is fine. But we have to respect the fact that this was a big challenge back in the day. All of this as a background to Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of Hashem, of God, and he was trying to steer the people back to monotheism. Again, it sounds crazy, but this was his task. And he was fighting an uphill battle. The, the king at the time was a fellow named Ahav Ahab. His wife was Ezebel or Jezebel in English. And they were steeped in idolatry. And they wanted everybody to serve idols. And it was a whole thing. It was a whole thing. The idol of preference of Jezebel, Ezebel, and Ahav, her husband, Ahab. Again, I'm giving you the Hebrew and English names for the king and queen at the time. The, 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 um, the idol of preference, the preferred idol, was... Um, we have other idols today, by the way. But that's, uh, that's for another, another conversation. Um, we worship many things. But getting back to this, they worshipped an idol called the Baal. B-A-A-L in English, the Baal. So that's what they were into. The prophet um, Elijah was so frustrated with the people. He didn't know what to do. 
So, or maybe he did know what to do, but he was still frustrated. Like, and, and we're gonna sh I'll show you some verses where you just sense his frustration. So at some point, and, and, and the, the idol worship, the idolaters, the ones that served the Baal, they had prophets, they had a whole mechanism, hierarchies. It wasn't just like a few guys bound down to a statue somewhere in a backyard. This was like a legitimate, not legitimate, Jewishly, but a thing that was going on. So at some point, Elijah says, Genugshain, which means enough is enough. And he says to the people, you got to make a choice. Either you're in or you're out. Either you're serving one God or you're serving the Baal. But you got to make a choice. Because you show up to the temple and you worship God and then you sneak off and are worshiping the Baal. Pick a side, my friends. And he, he challenges the prophets of the Baal, 450 prophets of this idol, to a competition. They're each going to bring an offering. They're each going to put wood as like a wood pile for fire, but not bring a match, right? Not bring any fire. Pray to their God, right? Hashem or the Baal. And let the true God produce the fire. You probably know the end of the story. It started raining. No, I'm kidding. The end of the story is, that was a joke. The end of the story is the Baal prophets. I'm here all week. The Baal prophets couldn't get the fire. And by the way, Elijah was mocking them. I'm just giving you more, a little bit of background to the story. Elijah's like, I bet you're God. I bet the Baal can't hear you. You probably have to scream louder. You probably have to make more noise. And then the true showman that he was, he was unbelievable with these, stunt, with these um, demonstrations. He goes to his own fire, pours water around it, literally pours water around it, Davins to Hashem, prays to God, boom, it catches on fire. Anyway, truly an amazing spectacle. Let's read a little bit, a little bit from this, um, from this story, from the original book. Okay, let me just check in before I share my screen. Everybody with me so far? Yes, makes sense? We're talking about um, Elijah, just making sure. Okay, good. I'm sharing my screen and... I think this is it. We'll find out. Here we go. Nope, this is not it, my friends. One second. Let's find the right one. Hold on, hold on. Here we go. Boom. Okay. Let me... Fast forward to the correct text. I'm going to make this bigger so that you and I can see. Mike, I see you first on my screen. Mike Carter, please take it away. Text one from the Book of Kings. And Elijah drew near to all the people and said, Until when you are hopping between two ideas? Until when are you hopping between two ideas? If the Lord is God, go after him. And if the Baal, go after him. And the people did not answer him a word. And Elijah spoke to the people, I have remained a prophet to God by myself, and the prophets of the Baal are 450 men. Thank you. So what we see here, perfect. So what we see here is, again, what I said before, how Elijah is, at least he feels he's the only beacon of truth. He's the only one who has this, you know, this, uh, this measure of, of sanity in this crazy world of everybody worshiping the Baal. He's the representative of God. He's very zealous. You know what I mean by zealous? He's very much like, 
a bit of a fire and brimstone guy. A bit. A bit of a fire and brimstone. Like truth and justice and the Jewish way. That's like his, that's his, that's his motto. Something like that. Okay, so he challenges, he makes this thing. I told you before, he gathers everybody on the mountain and he, two wood piles and he prays and they pray. Nothing happens with them. His fire goes up and he basically tells the people, you see? And you know what the people say? Hashem hu Elohim. God is the true God. That's what they proclaim. But as you and I sometimes know, you know, moments of epiphany and inspiration last, you know, yeah, that much amount of time. And before long, guess what the people were doing? They were back to the Baal. Why? You and I can't relate to it necessarily directly like that, but that's what they were into. That's what they were seduced by. They were into idol worship. That's it. Again, we worship other things, right? Usually not statues and other things like that, but we worship other things. The point is, they were back to serving the Baal. At this point, it gets even more complicated for Elijah. First of all, his whole demonstration thing doesn't seem to have had any long-lasting impact. Second of all, and this is even more pertinent to our story as it unfolds, second of all, at this point, the king, Ahav, or in English, Ahab, and his wife, Ezebel, or Jezebel, king and queen, are really not happy with Elijah. Like, super unhappy. Because he's trying to get everybody away from their idol. They're like, sponsored idol. Which is not cool for them. And so they want to kill him. So Elijah has to run away and hide for a while. And then finally, God kind of says, alright, come out of hiding. And he leads, he says, follow me. And he takes him back to Mount Sinai. And God is trying to communicate with him and eventually, Elijah really opens up to God and expresses his frustration about everything going on. And let me share this next text with you. We'll read it together. Okay, here we go. And Sarah Carter, will you please read text number two? This is again, Elijah near Mount Sinai, many years after Torah was given, but near Mount Sinai, complaining to God. Take it away. For the Lord, the God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They have torn down your altars and they have killed your prophets by the sword. And I have remained alone and they seek my life to take it. Look at this. Elijah saying, I'm the only one left. I'm the only. By the way, I told you he was zealous. Hey, that's not my words. That, he is self-describing, he's describing himself as zealous. I have been zealous for the Lord. That, that's, those are his words. Elijah's own words about himself. He says, they've turned down, talking to God, the people have turned down your altars, they've killed your prophets by the sword, and I have remained alone. That's a powerful line. Basically, I'm the only one on board with you, God, and, and they want to kill me also. And now they want to kill me. Yeah, you get the sense that Elijah saw himself as a lonely fellow. You get that sense? Elijah was lonely? That's, that's his sense. It's, it's hard to be standing on the mountain by yourself. That's how he felt. By the way, by the way, that's why Elijah is sent back to every Brit Milah, to every circumcis circumcision. You know why? You know why? 
because of what he says here. Let me share my screen with you one more time. Take a look. Ki azvu brischa b'nei Yisrael. He's complaining to God. The children of Israel have forsaken your bris, your covenant. I'm the only one left. They've gone off the rails. Your people have abandoned you, says Elijah to God, and they have forsaken your covenant. And God says, really? They've forsaken my covenant? Then you're going to have to go down every single time there's a covenant, a bris, a brit milah, a covenant ceremony. You're going to go back down to earth and you're going to bear personal witness that you're not the only one in the covenant. There's many, many others, generation upon generation upon generation, of young boys being brought into the covenant of, uh, of Abraham and of Judaism. Are you with me on this? What I'm saying? Yes? God sends Elijah down. I'm explaining now. Let me tell you what I'm doing. I'm explaining why Elijah has a seat of honor at every bris, at every circumcision. Because he claimed... That the people have forsaken your bris, your, your covenant. That means not only literally the covenant of circumcision, but the general covenant. And God says, really? Hold my beer. Well, in other words, like, really? Go, go take a look for yourself. It's not, it's not as bad as you're making it out to be. It's not so bad. And you know where else he sent? Every Passover to the Seder. You think the people don't care anymore? Look, they're gathered. They're drinking Manashevitz wine. That, if that's not true commitment, I don't know what is, right? That's what God is saying to Elijah. Look, try for yourself. It's the real deal. You with me so far? Yes? Okay. So who is the type of guy that says, that's it, everybody's gone mad, I'm the only one left. What kind of guy is that? Who says that, right? And clearly, you know, thousands of years of Jewish history have proven that we're still here. We're still, by and large, where we need to be, right? Am Yisrael, Am Yisrael Chai, right? The Jewish people are still around. Judaism still exists. The Torah still, still exists, still being followed. So what's, what's, what kind of guy is all, it's over, I'm the only one left? You know what kind of guy? I'm going to go back to a word I used before. Begins with a P. A perfectionist, right? Yeah, exactly. A perfectionist. Elijah is the ultimate perfectionist. So if everyone, and look what he says, by the way, as a perfectionist, either follow God or go to the Baal, right? Either or, black and white, that's a sign of a perfectionist, right? If it's not 100%, out of here, right? Forget about it. I might as well, it's like, you know, a perfectionist child doing a project. If it's not perfect, right, throw it in the garbage, right? If it's not 100%, done, out of here. Whereas the non-perfectionist says, all right, it's okay. It's, it's more or less okay. Hey, you want to come up? All right, here, no, no, let me help you. So a perfectionist, hey, Reeve, say hi. Okay. So a perfectionist says all or nothing, right? It's all or nothing, my way or the highway. And so when the people are, you know, are a little bit ambivalent, they're, they're in shul or they're in the temple, in the holy temple, but they're also, you know, hanging around the ball, you know, because who knows? 
That's not okay, right? No way. It's either or, right? 100% black and white. And when he feels like, you know, everyone's not getting it the way he gets it, he tells God, I'm the only one left. That's a sign of a, frankly, perfectionist, right? Now, there's, a lot, there's value in that. There's virtue in that. But it's a very extreme position. Again, think about the perfectionist as a child doing a school project. It's got to be perfect or else they might be in tears. So again, there's tremendous value and virtue, but also it comes with an inherent challenge. Now, Ali, yes. Could I interject one thing? Sure. I just maybe it'll help to contrast this with Avraham Avinu when Hashem, when God wanted to uh, destroy um, Lot's city, and Avram was bargaining. He said, "Well, well, okay, you don't have to have a, a, a completely." Um, righteous city, but how about how about forty men or fifty men, forty men, twenty men, ten men, right. one man? Okay. Right. I just yeah. Throw that in. Exactly right. So Abraham is negotiating with God, maybe save the cities if there are some righteous. Exactly. So that's a contrast. But we're going to contrast this tonight between Elijah and Moshe and Moses. So let's talk about the life and times of Moses right now. So what's interesting, and this we read in the beginning of the book of Exodus, which we're starting this week. The beginning of the book of Exodus talks about the Moses origin story, the origin story of Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our great leader. So he grows up in a very interesting context, right? I'm sure we've all seen the movie, Ten Commandments, right? There Moses is. He's um, born in a Jewish family, but in short order, he's placed in a basket, probably a Moses basket, and he's placed on the Nile River, right? He's on the Nile River, and he's rescued by the daughter of Pharaoh. And she rescues, she rescues him and brings him, raises him as, his, as, as her own son in the royal palace. Moses has, from a Jewish perspective, a less than perfect childhood. Right? Not raised in a Jewish community, not raised in a Jewish family, not raised in a Jewish school. Right? He would have, I mean, compared to you know, the perfection of Elijah, this would be an interesting imperfection, if you will. Right? And then Moses has to run away for many, many years, for decades, and he lives in a place called Midian. Right? As if you know the story about Moses... Um, early years before he became the leader of the Jewish people. So at some point, he's a wanted man in Egypt for killing an Egyptian that was beating up a Jewish guy. But anyway, he has to flee from Egypt, and he lives in Midian, living in a place, again, that's not Jewish, living in a non-Jewish country. He's the only Hebrew, the only Israelite there. So clearly Moses has more of a complex story. Now, I'm not suggesting that Moses is less of a tzaddik or less. I'm just saying that in his story, as is described in our Torah portion, right? Growing up in the palace, growing up with Pharaoh, right, around him, uh, living for many years, for decades in Midian, in a non-Jewish place, he had a lot of other influences in his life. So in contrast, so again, here's what I'm saying. In contrast to the Jewish perfection, 
of Elijah. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's one way or, you know, it's my way or the highway. There's only one way. It's, you know, all Jewish, all God, all the time and nothing else. No other influences. In contrast to that, Moses had a more colorful background, right? You with me on this? Yes? Makes sense? Okay. So here, now we get, so, so having these two personas kind of, you know, that we're thinking about, so now we can turn to an interesting story, one of the most famous pieces of the Moses story that, again, is told in this week's Torah portion, and I'm referring to the encounter by the burning bush. So to, to quickly recap, Moses is living in Midian. I'm giving you like uh, present tense as I'm going to walk you through the story. Moses is now living in Midian, in this non-Jewish place, away from a Jewish community, away from his family. He's living in this place called Midian. He finds a girl, they get married, they have a kid, and he is working for his father-in-law, who, by the way, is a priest of all sorts of um, other religions or other faiths or other traditions, and he's working for his father-in-law, tending his father-in-law's sheep. He's a shepherd. And the story goes that there was a sheep, a young sheep that wanders away, and Moses chases after the sheep. The sheep ended up by, uh, by, the, by, by a river, lake, water, whatever it is, by some body of water, stream to drink. Moses um, chases after this little one, picks him up, and carries him back to the flock. On the, way carrying the, on the way back to the flock with the sheep in his arms, Moses sees this incredible sight off the path. He sees a bush that's on fire, but the bush is not being consumed. So what happens? So Moses says, I must see what is going on here. What is happening here that, uh, that there's this bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And he turns off the road and he marvels at the sight. And then at that point, God speaks to him from amidst the burning bush saying, Moses, Moses, Moses says, here I am. And the dialogue begins. And what is the nature of the dialogue? In short, God is recruiting him. It's a headhunting mission, right? God is trying to recruit him away from shepherding and into the business of redeeming, right? Hey, you've been a shepherd. That's great. But I want you to be my shepherd of my people to lead them out to safety from this, uh, this slavery in Egypt. That's what I want you to do. And if you know a little bit about this dialogue, you know that it took about seven days to convince Moses. At the end, he wasn't even convinced. It was kind of like God said, all right, you, you got to do this. And at some point, Moses was like, okay, I guess I will. But there's an interesting, the dialogue, without cutting to the end of it, there's an interesting back and forth that goes on for those seven days. God says, do this. Moses says, nah, I'm not the right guy, or <coughs> I don't know what to say. I have a speech impediment, whatever it is. Moses throws out all, all these excuses. Eventually, he gets corralled, and we know that it works out at the end. But this is where this dialogue takes place. Well, one of the um, excuses that Moses gives is the following. I'm going to share my screen with you. And we're going to read this inside. Okay. Here we go. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, this is going to be text number four. Ray, please read this one, text number four, uh, page five. Don't forget to unmute yourself. 
We're good lip readers at this point, but not not good enough. So, thank you. Um, okay. Um, but he said, I beseech you, O God, send now your message with whom you would send. Thank you. That's a literal translation of what Moses says to God, trying to refuse the mission. He says no. He says, God, do me a favor. Be Adoni, or be Adonai. Do me a favor, God. Send the one that you're going to send. Send your message with the one with whom you would send. In other words, send the one that you're going to send. Don't send me for this mission. What does that mean? Send the one who you're going to send. So different commentaries have different uh, understandings. Some say that he meant send Aaron. His, Moses says, send my brother Aaron. He's older than me. Send him. Again, different opinions. We're going to go with what the Midrash says right here in text 5. Um, Bev, are you up to reading? Okay, yeah. Moses said to God, send now your message with whom you would send, namely with the person you are planning on sending in the future. God responded, I did not say go and deliver the message to the Jewish people. Rather, go and deliver the message to Pharaoh. As for the person of whom you speak, I indeed plan on sending him in the future to the Jewish people, as the verse states, lo, I will send you a lie to the prophet before coming to the great and awesome day of God. Thank you. So let's explain what's going on here in the Medrash. Again, the Medrash is explaining verse 4. Right? When, when Moses says to God, you got the wrong guy. You're asking me to go. What? You're sending the wrong. I'm not, I'm not the one for the job. Send the one whom you're going to send. What does that mean? Text 5 explains. Right? I'm going to explain what, what the explanation is, because it may be a little bit cryptic even in text 5. But essentially what the message is saying is that Moses was telling God, why are you sending me? Send Mashiach. Send Elijah. Elijah is the one we mentioned before. Elijah is the one, is the prophet, who will return to be the one. Um... Oh, yeah, I was thinking, what did the newsboys used to, used to announce? Extra, extra, read all about it. Mashiach is coming, right? That's Elijah. That's Elijah's job. Before Mashiach comes, he's going to be the one who heralds, the one who announces the coming of Mashiach. So the Medrash in text 5 that we just, that Bev just read, the Medrash says that Moses was saying to God, why are you sending me? Send Elijah. Send the Messiah. Send Mashiach. Why me? Send Elijah. And God says, listen, I didn't say go speak to the Jewish people. I said, go speak to Pharaoh. You're going to be the one speaking to Pharaoh. Later on, when the time is right, Elijah will be the one to tell the Jewish people that Mashiach is coming. But for right now, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. That's your job. I don't expect this medrash to make 100% sense yet because we still have more class to do. And we're going to explain this on, on, on every level what this means. But this is how... This is how, this is how um, the Medrash explains Moshe's refusal. He says, God, 
Don't send me, send Elijah. And now my questions. Question number one, why did Moses think it was a better idea to send Elijah? Question two, that's question one. Question two, why did God think it was a better idea to send Moses, not Elijah? Question three, right? What's the message for us? So again, question one, why did Moses think Elijah should do it? Question two, why did God think Moses should do it, right? I guess another question is, well, why was that the case that Moses had to do it? That's question two and a half. And question three is, what's the message for us? I hope those questions made sense. Does the question make sense? Thumbs up? Yeah? Don't forget to like and subscribe. Okay. Yes, thumbs up. Perfect. So those are the questions. Why did Moses think that Elijah should go? Why did, why did God think that Moses should go? Why indeed did Moses need to go? And what is the message for us? By the way, it's all connected with the personas that we spoke about before, about perfectionism and imperfection, but we're going to get back to that in a moment. But first, to really crack this case, the case of the burning bush. You want to come up? Sure. Here, turn around this way. Oh, you'll flip. Flip action. So in order to crack the case, we are going to present two perspectives on history. Really two perspectives on time. I'm going to do this very quickly because it's something we've spoken about in other contexts, other classes before, and it's a relatively straightforward context. The ancients believed that time, the nature of time, was cyclical. What that means is that time, history, life repeats itself. That everything, everything that's happened, sorry, everything that will happen, has happened, Ein tachas there's nothing new under the sun, it's all the same stuff. That's what the ancients felt, that's what they believed in, and it was a philosophy. It was faded, you know, kingdoms would rise, kingdoms would fall, and that's it. Same stuff, you know, different day, but the same, the same drama. You want to go down? Okay. So the same drama, the same stuff repeating itself. Judaism brought a brand new definition of time to the world. And that is not cyclical time, but linear time, which means... Judaism, and this is something that Judaism brings to the table, literally with the first word of the Torah, which is Bereshis, which means in the beginning, which means that there's a beginning and then there are other times that follow. So Judaism, literally with the first word of the Torah, introduces a new concept of time. Now, you and I can't relate almost to what, because it's something so ingrained, it's hard to like unravel that and unwind that to what it was like beforehand. Like we're, we look at the world so much through the lens of Judaism that to look at it, and the idea of linear time, that to look at it any other way almost doesn't seem possible. <coughs> but if you look in the ancient writings, you realize that all the societies, all the philosophies believed time was cyclical, the same thing's happening again and again and again, no progress. It's like, it's like a treadmill, so not really getting anywhere. Or like a hamster wheel, whatever, you know, plug in your own analogy. Judaism maintained and really innovated in the world the idea of, of linear time. The time is on a line, which means there's a beginning, there's a middle, and a destiny. In other words, there is a destination in which we are headed. <coughs> and thus, 
there's something to hope for, something to live for, something to work toward. It changes everything. I mean, if you knew that no matter what you do, the same results were going to happen, I mean, that would be kind of, I don't know, that would be infuriating, frustrating, that would be very limiting. Groundhog Day. It would be very, um, be very uh, stifling. Judaism brings the notion of innovation, right? Or just because yesterday was one way doesn't mean tomorrow needs to be the same way. That's an amazing concept. And that's been revolutionary on every level, internally, externally, progress, science, technology. Every, everywhere you look, it's all predicated on linear, on the idea that tomorrow could be radically better and, and, and more advanced than today. Everything that we know that we have is based on that premise. That's why I'm saying it's hard to imagine a world that's based on a different thought process, but that's what it was. I believe that um, the book, The Gifts to the Jews, or Gifts of the Jews, by Cahill? Is it Thomas Cahill? Anyway, if anybody read that book, I believe that, that this is one of the ideas that he develops at length in that book. Okay, you can fact check me later. Getting back to the core idea. Getting back to the core idea. Judaism believes in linear time. It's really more than linear time. It's kind of spiral time, which means that there are things that do come around again, but it moves deeper and, and, and forward. It's kind of like a spiral or a spring that you open up a little bit. So there, there is some sort of cyclical energy, but it's moving forward toward a destination, which makes the following concept very puzzling. You look at Jewish history or you look at history as told in the Bible, and you find some conflicting facts. Like, for example, one second, let me explain what I'm saying before I ask the question. So based on linear, this notion of linear time, so the, the message is that we're, always, we're advancing, we're constantly advancing and moving toward a greater goal. In other words, we're always climbing upward and onward and forward and making progress. The problem with that is, that's the notion of linear time. The problem with that notion is that when you look at the Torah, you find what seems to be one step forward and one step backward. It seems like you have rises and falls throughout, which seems more of like the cyclical model as opposed to the linear model. Does what I'm saying make any sense? Yes? Yes? Let me give you an example. Yeah, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Paradise, sipping the little daiquiris with the thing, with the umbrella, right? Snakes everywhere, partying. Yeah, good deal? Good deal. Beautiful deal. Spiritually great. Amazing. Good. Sin of Adam and Eve eating from the forbidden fruit. Bad thing? Good thing or bad thing? Okay, make it easier. Give me thumbs up for good, like step forward, and thumbs down for, uh, for step for, for down. Yeah, Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden before the sin. Yeah, you're with me on this? Good. Sin. No good. All right, what about um, giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai? Exodus and Torah at Sinai, divine revelation. God speaks to us, speaks the Ten Commandments. Yes, thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs up? Great. What about sin of the golden calf? It's dancing Havanagila around the calf. Yeah, not so good, right? Not so good. You see what I mean by step, step up and step down? It seems like we make progress, spiritual progress, and then we backslide. And then we made progress again, and then we backslid again. So what's going on here? And then, and then, you know, we've been stuck in this kind of post-sin, you know, post-golden calf, and then we had a temple, and we lost the temple, you know, up and down. And it seems like, what kind of linear, what kind of, Four progresses, it's a bunch of ups and downs, and now we're in a down, and Mashiach is going to come, we'll be back up again. 
but it seems like it's just up, down, up, down, up, down, not really moving anywhere, advancing. So here's what I want to tell you. This is a complicated, it's a complex topic, not complicated, it's an involved topic, it's a big question, and an involved topic. In fact, spoiler alert, I wrote, I wrote a whole lesson for JLI for the spring, so if you come to our spring course on human destiny, I will be sharing that, I will be teaching a class that I wrote for the Worldwide Jewish Learning Institute in the spring, in probably May time. So I'll develop, we'll develop that more at length then, but here's the short version of it. Although, although clearly there are ups and downs in history, according to Jewish thought, Jewish philosophy, Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, every step along the way, even the ones that seem to be steps down are in fact platforms for growth and advancement and development. In other words, although it seems like they had everything and then they lost it all, sometimes in order to grow, you need to break and destroy the status quo. Are you with me on this? Yes? Sometimes you have to lose what you have in order to get what you can get. Right? It's kind of like maybe a snake, getting back to snakes. Snakes are very versatile in tonight's class. Sometimes they're, they're the source of all sin. Sometimes they're use, useful for an analogy. If I'm not mistaken, a snake has to shed its skin before developing a new one. And in a similar way, right? In a similar way, we have the same notion that in order to grow exponentially beyond the status quo, sometimes you have to shatter the status quo. There's no easy way for growth to happen. I will say parenthetically, maybe it's not so parenthetically, maybe it's the whole point of tonight, um, you know, captured in this one idea, that the same thing is true with us in personal growth. If everything stays the same, are we really growing? And it's sometimes and very often those moments when the ground beneath us shakes and when we, we suddenly realize that things are not the same and that the things that we had are no longer, the things that we, could have re that we relied on can no longer be relied upon. It's in those moments of, let's just call them upheaval, that true growth is possible. Because if we think what we thought and we say what we said and we do what we did, we'll have what we had. For real growth to happen, you have to shatter, oftentimes, the status quo. And so, Kabbalah and Jewish philosophy, everywhere you look in, in Judaism and Jewish thought, it says pretty much the same thing. That in order to really grow, you have to sometimes take a step down. Every step along the way then is really a step forward on some level. Because to go forward sometimes, you have to do something that looks like a step back to advance. Let's take a look though at two steps forward, at two of the forward steps. Number one, the giving the Torah at Sinai, and number two, the future redemption with Mashiach. So we have this great spectacle, this great moment of revelation at Sinai, and God delivers the Ten Commandments and the Torah, and it's beautiful and it's amazing. But then we sin with the golden calf. And then you have Mashiach, which is a perfect world, and, and global redemption, and no more hate, and no more animosity, and no more fighting, and that's eternal. So, what's, so wh how, how can we perhaps characterize the distinction? 
Well, I mean, there's a lot of distinction already in the way I described it, but one way to look at it is like this. What happened at Sinai didn't last. As we've discussed in prior Wednesday Night Torah Studies classes, the reason why, why the, the experience at Sinai didn't last is primarily because it didn't come from us. It came from above. There was a divine revelation. God spoke to us. God gave us the Ten Commandments. God gave us the Torah. God did all the heavy lifting. And we loved it and we experienced it, but it wasn't self-driven. It was top-down. It wasn't user-generated. And anything that's top-down, for the moment, it's amazing. But when that moment fades, when the, the, um, when the wave crashes, typically the surfers also crash at some point. And so if we're just riding the wave, well, we'll ride it until it ends, and then we'll end up with a golden calf. Whereas Mashiach represents the culmination of our own efforts, what we're doing right now, right? In a world where we don't see divine revelation, we don't have divine communication, we don't have all the, all the, um, the perks and benefits that they had once upon a time, doing the work now is what leads to a perfected world from the inside out, not from the outside in. So, yeah, God can manifest, but that doesn't last in this world. It's when we own it and embrace it, that's what lasts. So that's a little bit of a distinction between these two highs of Sinai and ultimate redemption, which brings us back to Moses and Elijah. You see, what did Moses say to God when God said, hey, Moses, I just drafted you, you know, call to the bullpen. Hey, Moses, come on in, go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. What does Moses say? Send Elijah. Send Elijah. Why, why, essentially what he was saying is, why bother with the intermediary step? Why go with Exodus and then Sinai and then Golden Calf and then Temple and then destruction of the Temple and the whole rigmarole of history just cut to the end? You want, the, if the end, if the destination, right, linear time, if the end is Mashiach, so then don't send me, send the Messiah now, send Elijah, send Mashiach, end this now. Get fast forward to the end. It's like you pick up a book, yeah, a mystery, and you hit the last page. Oh, okay, the butler did it. Done, next. Moses says, cut out. Cut out all the, inner, all the middle drama of history and fast forward to the end. And what does God say? What does God say in the Medrash? God says, nope, says Shalom. Right, that's what God says. God says, no can do. Why? Because you and I, you saw the message before, text 5. God says, I didn't tell you to speak to the Jewish people. I told you, Moses, to speak to Pharaoh. As long as there's still a Pharaoh, as long as there's still darkness in this world, it's a slow and steady progress. Let me crystallize this for a second. Moses, let me put it into the language of our class tonight. Moses, you want to skip to perfection. Mashiach, ultimate redemption, there's a process, and it's a slow process because we're still involved in correcting and working on imperfection. So often in life, we don't, we find ourselves, or maybe some people find themselves, running out of patience because things are not looking exactly the way we'd like. And Moses was expressing that to God, saying, God, if you want to fix things once and for all, send Mashiach now. Send Elijah now to call it, to end it. And God says, the world is not ready. There's a process. And don't fast forward. And don't fast forward through the imperfection. There's a beauty in working on the imperfection. 
There's a beauty in the struggle. There's a beauty in things not looking the way exactly they need to be. Yes, ultimately, we're working toward perfection. But don't skip over the plot of the book. There's so much beauty and there's so much enjoyment and there's so much drama in a good way. There's so much beauty. I'll say that word twice. There's so much beauty in the middle, in the struggle, in working through everything. Can't just fast forward to the end. It's a powerful message. It's a powerful message to, to Moses. Because remember, Moses represents imperfection. And Moses is basically saying, don't send me. I'm the imperfection guy. Send Elijah. He's your perfect guy. He'll bring a perfect world. And God says, we're not skipping. We're not skipping because we're not ready for it. And because by skipping, we would lose out on the beauty that lies in the imperfection. And this, my friends, is a lesson that you and I can learn, that you and I can learn in our own lives. I'm looking on a text that I can share with you. Give me a second. Yeah, I'm going to share with you in a moment, text 14. You and I have a lot to learn from this. Some of us are perfectionists. And some of us, like Elijah, it's got to be perfect or else forget about it. I'm out. If it's not perfect, then I don't want any part, I don't want to have any part of it. And that's what Moses says to God. Although Moses doesn't represent perfection, he says, I'm imperfection on, on one level. I'm not doubting Moses' perfection. I'm just saying on one level, he represents something different than Elijah. He says, so cut me out. Cut me out of the story. Bypass me. And skip straight, skip straight to Elijah. Shlach na biatishlach. God, send the one whom you're eventually going to send. Skip to perfection. And God says, Moses... Appreciate what you represent. Appreciate the working with the imperfection. Appreciate the struggle. It reminds me of a story that I've told many times before about the young man who visited the Lubavitcher Rebbe and he complained. He was complaining about his own spiritual struggles and he said to the Rebbe, he said to, the, to, his, to his spiritual leader, he said, why is it so difficult to do the right thing? It's so difficult. He was, th- from his perspective, as a young man, it's so difficult to make the right choice. Why is it so hard? And the Rebbe said, he said, look, that's what, that's what it means. It's part of the human condition. If you were an angel, right, angels have it easy. Human beings have it difficult. So the young man said, so I'd rather be an angel than a human being. You're not answering the question. You're just telling me how, how, how terrible it is or how unlucky it is to be a person, right? So I'd love to be an angel without any struggles without any concerns, without any challenges. And the Rebbe said to him, all right, let me give you another, and let's, let's approach it from another angle. So the Rebbe said, what's more beautiful? Sorry, which is more valuable? A photograph or a painting? Right, a good photograph or a good painting? So the young man thinks, and he says, a good painting. You know, paintings are, are very valuable, more than even photographs. And the Rebbe said, it doesn't make sense, though. A photograph is perfect, and a painting is imperfect. And uh, it got the young man thinking. And ultimately, the conclusion in that conversation was, yes, the photograph is perfect, but therein lies its limitation. Because it's perfect, it doesn't have as much beauty as the imperfection of the painting. The message for you and I is that there's beauty in the struggle. There's beauty in imperfection. A photograph, a perfect photograph is wonderful. 
but it doesn't have the depth of a painting that emerges from the innards, from the insides of the artist who took in the scene and then worked with it and through it and then produced something on canvas that represents their take on the scene that they saw. It's not perfect. But in that struggle to produce the art, there is, there is beauty there. I started off the class by saying, right, the photo's not unique because it's not, because it, it's not born of struggle. It's not born of, and no uh, Instagram filters can, can change that. So here's the point. What's the point? Oftentimes, we think it's all or nothing for our own lives. You know, if I can't be perfect, if I can't do everything perfectly, then why should I bother? If I'm not going to go kosher all the way, so then why should I try that my next meal should be kosher? What's the point? Right? If I'm not yet ready to go all the way, so then should I even bother ordering something kosher from a kosher restaurant the next time I go out to eat? What's the point? If I'm not going to go all the way, that is falling into the trap of perfectionism. Again, maybe we don't think of it in those terms, but I imagine that whether it's kosher or something else, that all of us can relate to that. We, th we have this perception within Judaism also of all or nothing. And if I can't go all the way, then not for me. The message is what God says to Moses, don't handcuff yourself by looking too far down the line, by needing it to be perfect, right? Yeah, Elijah was the perfectionist, but you know what? God took Elijah out of the world. God took it. I mean, everyone gets taken out at some point, but Elijah went up to heaven in a chariot. God's like, you're too, <laughs> you're, it's, you're too intense. You're out. That's the way it was with Elijah. And God is telling Moses, you want to send Elijah to, to, to bring perfect perfection? There's beauty in the imperfection. There's beauty in imperfection. I want you to be the leader, right? You with your interesting, colorful background, you who grew up in, a, in the palace of Pharaoh, you who lived in Midian for decades, I want you to be the leader. There's beauty in the imperfection, beauty in the struggle. So for you and I, let's appreciate the struggles that we have, not only as things to overcome, but also in things that as we work through them, allow us to tap into inner reservoirs of strength and allow us to produce beautiful canvases, canvi perhaps, of beauty. <laughs> A beauty that can only be captured and produced and represented when we are in the midst of tension and struggle. And so let's appreciate what we have. And I want to close it out. Yeah, I want to close it out with one text that I promised you before. I'm going to read this one quickly, text number 14. I know we skipped a bunch of texts from 5 to 14, but I pretty much told you everything that's in here. Moses' primary accomplishment was the events at Mount Torah at Sinai, and he thereby empowered future generations to work on transforming the world. Mashiach's mission, right? Messiah's mission is to complete the transformation and bring about a time when all work will be in an environment of a perfect world. So again, struggle versus perfection. Moses ushers in the Torah era, which is about the struggle using Torah, but with the struggle. And then Mashiach is about perfection, end of struggle. 
This then is, is the significance of God's response to Moses. I did not say go and deliver the message to Jewish people. Rather, go and deliver the message to Pharaoh. As for the person of whom you speak, I indeed plan on sending him in the future to the Jewish people. That was a quote from the Medrash Text 5. Here's the explanation. Moses was about working in a world that has a Pharaoh, working hard to transform and refine it. By contrast, Elijah and Mashiach are primarily conditioned to operate in a world in which the spirit of evil has been removed from the earth. Two different realities, two different personas. The Moses is the one who's working in a world that's still dark, working, Torah works within us, we who are still not perfect, and there's struggle, and there's challenge, and there's tension, and there may seem like ups and downs, but that's where the beauty is. Elijah, Mashiach, perfection, that's the end of the story, that's the end of our linear time. That's the end, that's destiny. The message is, no fast forwarding through life. Savor every moment, savor every challenge, savor every struggle, because that's where the beauty is to be found. We'd all like to be perfect, We'd all, we'd all like things to be perfect. And please God, they should be. But as long as we're not there yet, let's not fast forward through the good stuff. Let's, let's recognize, let's recognize the beauty in the space that we call home right here and right now. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for Torah Studies. I hope this message resonated for you. I'm going to stay on for a few more minutes, questions, comments, um, and discussion. Thank you, Dr. Maxi, for the, uh, for the, Emoji. I appreciate that. Um, okay, a few things. Announcements, quick announcements before we get started. Very important VIAs, very important announcements. Number one, we're starting a brand new course on Monday called the Judaism and Wealth Series, taught by Rabbi Schusterman. It's going to start Monday evening. It's about Jude Jewish perspective perspectives on the economy and on finance and on money. Very, very compelling topics and practical topics as well. So join us starting Monday night. You can find it on our website, intownjewishacademy.org. Next announcement. Coming up in a little under two weeks, two weeks from last night, we have an incredible program with one of the world, the, 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 the greatest experts in the world today on Jewish bioethics. In other words, Jew, um, Jewish medical ethics. His name is Rabbi Dr. Eddie Reichman. He lives in New York. He's a, he's a practicing doctor. He teaches emergency medicine. He's a professor, and he also teaches medical ethics. And he is going to be speaking about the latest emerging medical technologies known to mankind today and their implication and ramifications when looked at through the lens of Jewish law and ethics. For example... Um, disease and vaccine and genetics and genetics and genetic engineering and also genetic um, editing. There's now COVID, uh, not COVID, there's now CRISPR. There's also COVID. There's CRISPR, which is CRISPR gene editing technology where you can actually edit, splice out different segments of, uh, of, 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 of DNA to create a different reality the question is, how, what does Jewish law and, and ethics say about this? So that's going to be a fascinating discussion. Really astonishing topics will be explored um, Tuesday night, January 19th. So please mark the calendar and please join us. That also is available on the website. 
Um, two additional announcements. I promised three, I'm delivering four. Look at that, under promise and over deliver. Two more quick announcements. Um, we have a course starting at the end of the month, January 26th and January 28th. It's called Journey of the Soul. It's about the journey of the soul. Before life, during life, well, before the soul comes down to earth, during its time on earth, and then what happens later. We've had courses about this in the past. This will be some of the material that some of you have explored before with additional new material that we've never covered before. So you definitely want to take a look at this and join us on either the 26th or the 28th. Two options for this new course, Journey of the Soul. Finally, Saturday night, January 30th, we have a Cafe Chabad, virtual Cafe Chabad event. You can pick up food beforehand, desserts and tea, and then join us Saturday night online for a very special talk with, from a very special presenter. The topic is on the Jewish perspective on intimacy. It will be taught by Rebetzin Goldie Plotkin from Toronto, or Markham, Ontario, from Toronto. And it's going to be a fabulous evening. So join us again. Take a look on the website. Everything is there in town, jewishacademy.org. That's all the news that's fit to print. There, are, there, there is more, but I'm going to stop right there and just check it out for yourselves. And please join us. Don't forget, don't just check it out, but also sign up and join us. Everything is online. The JLI class, Journey of the Soul, there's also an in-person, outdoor, socially, socially distant option. So you can take a look at that. But otherwise, either way, join us. All right, questions, comments? The, the mic is open. I just wanted to add, Ari, that the painting analogy holds up across time because a photo is done in an instant. Instant. Boom. You got Mashiach. Without the whole 2,500, however many years of gullus, of exile, and, and ups and downs and trials and tribulations. Right. But, but, but the painting is like... Our journey, it takes time, it takes right. effort. You've got you to sometimes paint over, but if you paint over, you're still building up the canvas to the, the final product. Beautiful. The final beautiful I love it. result. So your, your analogy holds up. I love it. Well, listen, and, I mean... And, and I, could just, I just want to add Goldie Plotkin. I want to add a testimonial of my own. She's Armish Pacha. And she's a fantastic speaker. There you go. Okay. You heard it from, the, from, from, Th from mommy. This is it. This is it. Mom approved. So at this point, you got to join. Ariella, go ahead. Um, I wanted to add on to something that... So this is your mother? Yes. Yeah. Your lovely mother. Nice to meet you. I loved your comment earlier uh, when you were talking about um, perfectionism and ah, Abraham when he was he's bargaining with God and saying, okay, will you save the city? What if there are 30 or 20 or 10? And, and there's this concept that we sometimes discuss in Torah study about, um, also at my synagogue, about... Um, the fact that 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 we evolve, God evolves with us, like it's a process. So I was thinking, oh, like, well, what if God was a perfectionist at first, 
and Abraham taught him not to be. And so then by the time you get to Elijah, Elijah's trying to be a perfectionist, and God says, no, it's okay. Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because he learned it. That's yeah. Well, yeah. it's just, a, it's just a, maybe that's a little midrash or <laughs> just, just No, I, I, I see that. I know mean, what you're saying is that, like, if I would say, you know, it, look, to build on that, if God were consistently a perfectionist, that would be very challenging for us to keep in that, in that space, right? If God was looking at us under a microscope like that for perfection, that would be a very tall order. So, and God didn't create us perfect. If we know our flaws, you don't think God knows our flaws? I don't mean you, but we, we don't think that God knows our flaws. God knows our flaws more than, any, more than we know our flaws because God created us with our flaws and our temptations and our human frailties and our limitations. God knows it better than, better than we. So hopefully God is not a perfectionist because if God were a perfectionist, he, <laughs> he's in for a run for his money, right? It's not, uh, yeah. But look, God created angels, and angels are perfect, and that's, you know, it's good for there. But there's something else that, that we're, we're intending here. But yeah, it's beautiful how Abraham is kind of like, um, is bargaining. But look, it does seem from the Torah, like Moses also later on, educate, seems like he's educating God about forgiveness. Like, God, you got to forgive the people after the sin of the golden calf. Because otherwise, if you hold them to a perfect standard, you know, what, what's left? You know, how could we survive like that? Seems like Moses educating God, but I, it's pr- possible also that God had that plan. He just wanted it to come from us, from human beings, a little bit user-driven also. But yeah, excellent point. Um, I, I just want to add one thing. Even, even, even Adam and Eve were not created perfect. Adam, Adam needed to have an alteration done, major alteration, major surgery. He had to have a rib removed to create his partner. Right, right, yeah, true, exactly. It's a bumpy ride, this thing called life with human beings. But hey, it's, the, it's, it's all about the journey. There's, there's fun in the turbulence. Just gotta hold on <laughs> for the ride sometimes. All right, questions, comments? I'm scanning the room. All right. I want to wish everybody a good evening and good health and happiness and positivity. And uh, it's great to connect with all of you. And it's great to connect with Torah together. And I value the opportunity to continue studying with you on a weekly basis and on a regular basis. And I hope that you appreciate the opportunities as well. All right. Lila Tov. And we'll see you soon. Take care, everybody. Bye, all. Stay healthy. Pleasure, pleasure. See you soon.